Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. We are back for episode 18 of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm Dr. Kevin L. Hayek from sunny Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm Dr. Sharin Tofai from currently not that sunny Los Angeles. Hmm. Kevin, we're having this thing called May Gray. Have you heard of that? I have. I mean, but does, does it really matter when you're stuck in traffic? Uh, I mean, it's pretty sunny today in Cleveland. I had the top down and enjoying the weather here. Top down? You actually have a convertible in <laughs> Cleveland? <laughs> for the, I do. I mean... Okay. Well, for those two months of the year where you can actually use it, I mean, you, you deserve <laughs> oh, it. Good for you. <laughs> well, let's just pray that the good weather starts early next year for Sages 2024 in Cleveland. Yay. Never too late to start promoting our national meeting. Is it April 17th through 20th, 2024? You better be there. Otherwise, you don't want to be square. And you don't want to be square. You do not. And neither does today's guest on Sages Stories. Dr. Ross Goldberg. Ross has been a fan favorite in Sages for a number of things, not least of which was his colorful attire for the Sages family feud in Montreal a couple months ago. Well played, my friend. Well played. I appreciate that. Well, you know, I wanted to match the band at the sing-off, so I got to do that this year. So it was, you know. Yeah, that was awesome. It was there for me. Well, as an introduction, Ross hails from New York slash New Jersey. He notes that he was born in the Bronx, but mostly grew up in Short Hills, New Jersey. In 1999, he received his Bachelor of Science from Emory University, followed by his MD at New York Medical College in 2003. He split time between St. Vincent Catholic Medical Center in New York and Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia for his general surgery residency, which he completed in 2010. After that, he spent two years at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville as a research and clinical fellow in minimally invasive surgery. Incidentally, that's when we both met and became friends at the MIS Fellows course in Sedona, Arizona. And Arizona becomes a theme because he's been there for the last decade in Phoenix, where he has climbed the ranks at Valleywise Health District Medical Group, formerly known as Maricopa Integrated Health System where he has held multiple leadership positions, including Chief of Division of General Surgery, Director of Robotic Surgery, and most recently, Vice Chairman of the Department of Surgery. And in August of this year, 2023, he will assume his new role as Chief of Perioperative Services at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, uh, Miami, Florida. Welcome to Sage's Stories, Ross. Thanks. I know you're going to say Miami, Ohio. I, saw I was going to say Miami of Ohio, Miami of Ohio. It's similar. Commonly mistaken. <laughs> no, it's to- Miami, Florida. Miami, Florida. Yes. I'm trading the desert for the beach, which I'm okay with. Well, you're, you're actually trading a hot zone. weather state with another hot weather state. Yeah, but I came from Jacksonville, so I'm already used to Florida. So I'll, I'll have to get used to humidity, <laughs> unfortunately, but better than 120 degrees, I guess. Yeah, this is true. 
Um, all right, well, Sage of Stories, welcome. As you may know, we're all about getting to know the story behind the star. Oh and boy, do you shine, Ross. Those of you who are with us in Montreal and Sage's meeting know <laughs> what I mean. And uh, I still want to know where you bought that mirrored suit. That was quite the... Amazon. For real? You get everything from Amazon. Real tuxedo jacket um, that I found on Amazon because that's where you find everything. Yeah. Just so people know I have platform shoes that I used to wear in the OR that I also got from Amazon. So, <laughs> yes, you can find lots of things on Amazon. All I will say is that if we get to do Family Feud again next year and there are rumors yeah. about it, I have decided to up my game for next time. And that's all I'm going to say for now. Oh, well, you said you were trying to match the the band. I, the band was this year, but next year is, you know, we are going to be in Cleveland, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know. Oh, I, no, Elvis. And, yep. and there I vote Elvis. I am trying. I'm not going to give anything away. There's plenty of time to prepare. That's all I'm I, I say go for late for 70s Elvis. Not yeah. Elvis. Oh, yeah. Go for the wings. Oh, home of rock and roll you gotta you gotta do it upright you, you yeah, might have to go you may not have you may have to go to some specialty store not amazon i think this may be this may call for a true specialty store you're talking to the guy who went to a hollywood a broadway costume store for halloween one year to get an authentic napoleon outfit to wear so i am willing to do it <laughs> i love this if you didn't want to go to stages in Cleveland up until now, now is the reason. <laughs> that was the reason. Even if I don't have anything assigned, I may just show up in an outfit now. Like that seems to be my thing. So yes, for sure. Everyone's there to see what Ross is wearing. And I appreciate anyway. I appreciated the tweet, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Anytime. I'm I'm here for you, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> um Go on Twitter and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, all right. Now. So <laughs> we have an hour or so that we'll uh, get to learn all about you, all about your fashion style, uh, your journey in surgery, your your work with sages. But let's start early years. Um, tell us about where you grew up and whether any of that inspired you to go into the medical surgical field. Well, you know, it's funny. So I, I grew up mostly Short Hills, New Jersey. I, I joke born in the Bronx because you always that's like a requirement. You have to say that if you were born there, um, you know, spent my childhood in Northeast, you know, school in Atlanta, then back to Northeast for medical school, and then kind of up and down the East Coast for training, Boston, Philly, New York seemed to hit all the all the required ones that you should when you live in the Northeast, I guess, to try them all out. To be honest, my story is a little odd in that, you know, I growing up kind of had two pathways, potentially science was always one of them. Uh, the entertainment business was the other that shouldn't surprise you given some of my antics, but um, a lot of people know. So I had an interesting experience. I was a child actor, a professional actor. When I was a kid, I did one. Um, I did one professional show. I was the understudy for the character of Artie Kernitz in the national tour of Lost and Yonkers. After oh, really? What? So, That's amazing. See, you uncover so many my... things on Sage's stories. You, okay, hold on. Hold on. Yeah. To be fair, I don't know what that is. Can you explain that? All right. So uh, uh, it was a Broadway show written by Neil Simon. Neil Simon is a far, you know, well-known playwright. At, wrote yes. several, you know, It's uh, East Coast yeah. stuff, uh, Sharon. Uh, this stuff. is a uh, yeah, this is not silver screen. This is, you know, uh, true acting. Well, Broadway, it was made into a movie. You know. It was made into oh, a movie. It was, okay. yeah, but, you know, that's after it becomes popular on Broadway. True, I mean, it's after not one after one of Tony Awards and Pulitzer Prizes. Were the uh, Kardashians involved? No. <laughs> involved. Again, 
East Coast. East before Coast. That. Okay. Way, yes. before that. Way before that. Yeah, no, I I got into acting a little bit as a as a kid and through happenstance auditioned for Broadway for that show, didn't get it. And then like three months later, they called me back to audition for the understudy role for the tour. Somehow I got it. And then instead of ninth grade, I you know was on the road for 10 months in 22 cities, ended my time in LA all over the country serving as the understudy. Wow. Though the fun wow. fact I like to tell everyone is the show where um, Los Yonkers was on Broadway as the Richard Rogers Theater. So I actually auditioned and performed on that stage. That's the current stage where Hamilton is. So I have been on. Wow, you know, that's cool. The same theater. Oh. So, and I got to meet a variety of people, obviously. If you uh, were Hamilton, which character would, if you were in Hamilton, which one would you be? Well, I'm not going to sing for you because I don't want to make everyone turn off the podcast simultaneously. <laughs> um, we can always but, edit. <laughs> but which character do you relate I, with? I, I like Hamilton's just, I like all the, the you know, the one shot is. Yeah, knowing, yeah, knowing yeah. my personality, that's, that's fits right. Okay. In. Yeah. I'd see you as a Hamilton for sure. That's well, pretty amazing. I love the story. I don't want to end as Hamilton. And let's, let's say I, I'll stay with the first half, the first act. We'll, we can skip the second act. Well, that's great. I, I think, you know, one of the things I absolutely love about you is your constant, frankly, infectious, positive attitude uh, in a field surgery. And we'll, we'll, we want to dig a little bit more into how you got into that because we're just yeah. at your Yonkers stage. But there's a, a lot of complaining and a lot to complain about. So um, where did you learn and cultivate your optimism? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm realistic, but I, I like to, it's just, I've always felt that, you know, you have good positive attitude, you know, good things will happen there. There's, I'm, I don't, we can't control what's going on. Uh, I think getting involved and dealing with issues is a way to fix things. Um, I think just one of my pet peeves is sitting on the sideline and watching things happen. I just can't do that, which well, as we'll go into it, will make sense for what else I've done in my career. I think that just kind of feeds into it. It's if if you're miserable and not having a good time and, and you know, you're letting kind of life win, I, I don't accept that. I think we can control our faith the best we can. We can't control everything, but I think having the right attitude towards everything, you know, I think just partially how I was raised and just what I believe and just, and I'm the benefit of, especially people at Sages, I feel we all have that kind of same optimistic attitude. It's the, it's a different vibe at that meeting versus any other meeting I've been to. Just, I don't know. It's that infectious enthusiasm is everywhere when you're at Sages. Like, I just feel that all the time when I'm at the meeting. I don't know if that makes sense, but I kind of feel. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, I agree with you. That's the way the Sages meetings go, but you know, studies show that optimistic people tend to live longer. They have better outcomes from surgeries and diseases and so on. So, I mean, you're going to live to be over 120 probably. With well, not the way your... I treat myself sometimes, but yeah. yeah. You're, you're hot on George Bercy's tail. Uh, you're hot on his tail. <laughs> well, but I tell the patients that too. If they if they are going to will themselves to something bad to happen, it will happen. So mm, I yeah. need them in a good mental state. Otherwise, you know... Th- it's connected. I, I really do believe that. And tell us a little bit about your family. Are you among many or are they all optimistic like you are and fun and I, they're realistic. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I'm the only physician in my family. Uh, I come, my father's an attorney, so you could either say that makes sense or we apologize. That um, makes sense. I mean, I, I did post <laughs> every day of my life. Like I talked to him today and I feel like I came out of the deposition a little bit. So, um, <laughs> 
but they just they they all have it's funny my parents and i obviously i view them my way as you know as their kid but i have my friends who love to talk to my parents because always just tell good stories and you know my mother somehow makes friends with everyone unintentionally she's just got that kind of aura around her so it's kind of funny that i think i got it off them a little bit um just the way they are they don't do it intentionally versus like say my father's parents who were my they were the life of the party sometimes um they would say anything that would pop in their head their their filter was completely broken so I think I got some of it from them. I, I would like to think that's where it came from. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Um, also looking at your CV, you're, you have not only like the whole Broadway thing, but you personally also have a musical bent. I saw that you were into classical piano. Is that, that, was, right? that is, I haven't played in a little bit, but I still have my weighted keyboard here. It was supposed to be, it was funny. My dad bought a piano when I was a boy for my mother and of course, me at like five years old goes up there and starts panging away on it, not knowing what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, we'll just get him lessons. So yeah. that went right to, you know, I I took lessons all through high school. I mean, from five years old to high school. I still play when I can. It's been a while. Um, I find it very relaxing. It was, it was It's a lot of fun. Nice. And a question from a surgical standpoint, you know, one thing I was taught as a resident is you really want to have a very strong fingers and wrist mm -hmm. because it makes the surgery at the end, usually for open, especially much more dainty and better control the tissues. Do you feel like the strength you get in your wrist and fingers from being a classical pianist also is helpful in training you for the intricacies of surgical technique? I do. I think it's kind of funny how, you know, and you've, I mean, you've had other much more mu musically talented people on before me. Um, I mean, this is true, but go ahead. I mean, let, I, I'll, I'll just throw it out there, but I, well, I, we had Jake Greenberg on. Yeah, that's yeah. just, there's no I mean, comparison. So that's yeah. why I was going to avoid the musical stuff. Well, but you know, I think it's, it's, it's nice to kind of see the overlap in, in yeah. various people who have, you know, backgrounds in, in truly more formal music and that, that music that's last. So. No, yeah. I, and I agree though. I think it does help. It's strength, right? If you're playing piano over and over again, you are building muscle strength and dexterity. And, you know, I'm a lefty. So as we know, yeah. they need to train me in residency. Um, I still to this day claim that that the gallbladder is a biased organ since it is mostly designed for my <laughs> That's uh, so true. Yeah, really. It's, it would not survive in today's day and age. It's uh, so, yeah. um, but I think it, it gave me the ability to learn how to operate with both hands, to feel comfortable, to have some strength in my hands. And even though I don't do it as much now, I think that residual, you know, learning every day for hours at a time really. Yeah. And, and I knew this about you as well, but, but Legos, great toys, uh, keep the mind churning. My kids love them. Sounds like you have quite the interest have you have you been asked to be on lego masters or anything like that or what no are some my of your, what are some of your top legos uh um uh, creations i haven't built that many i own a lot um and for a move like this taking them all apart is probably one of the more painful parts of my life right now oh, wait you have to undo your legos You're gonna undo as a them? travel across the nation i'm about 60 percent done taking them apart <laughs> i can't feel my fingers at the moment but you know oh, we'll back there uh, well, the first one I got to make was that Lego OR for the ACS. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was the very first thing I ever created. That That's was super cool. Dr. Patricia Turner's fault. Yeah. Uh, 
that was the so the college also who we met on in Sedona. Yes, well, and who's now you know, she is she is the pinnacle of the surgical world, and yeah, we're thankful she is there. Um, that came about because the ACS had a logo in Legos at the Boston meeting. Uh, I tweeted about it, said that was awesome. She said thank you. I said I want it. She said, no. She goes, why don't you build a Lego OR instead? And then I had to walk oh. up to her and be like, you just called me out on Twitter. And she's like, <laughs> it's hey. over. She's like, now you have to build one. We'll pay for it. I said, okay. So I figured there's a Lego design program I downloaded. I started designing it on the plane ride back from Boston, which was confusing the flight attendants. Um, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Is that for work? I said, kind of. You uh, a surgeon? Uh, it kind of work, yeah. Is there kinda. a doctor in the airplane? We need I some help. I'm yeah. just a Lego designer. Yeah. Um, the first iteration was a single room, about 1,200 pieces. I had a robot. I had two consoles. I had a C-arm. I had a screaming patient, got it all figured out. Wow. Did the patient have a hernia or a hepatobiliary problem? I didn't know. That's esophagectomy. That was an esophagectomy. It was before they went went to other (laughs) anesthesia. I did have the anesthesiologist with a mask right over his face. So I had it all mapped out. (laughs) I showed it to Patricia at the AMA meeting the next month. And she goes, great. That's not big enough. I said, what do you mean it's not big enough? She goes, it has to be at least three times this big. I go, first of all, I don't have enough bricks to make it life-size. I don't know what you want. So what oh, happened wow. was that one room became eight. It was ended up being five feet by three feet. I had a pre-op, a PACU, a doctor's lounge, a locker room, center core, two ORs. One was a hybrid room that had blood on the floor. Uh, I had a you know, waiting room with some TV. That was Sharon's room. What? <laughs> I had blood on the My hybrid the hernia room. Yeah. Um, and I have a video of it. I can show you guys when I see you. But yeah, it, yeah. Is display. any of this public? Well, yeah, we tweeted about it. We uh, yeah, we we, we, we can put a link of, if you have a yeah. We can display. definitely put a link because I'm sure people are dying to see this thing. Yes. So was, we put in. A, I had to. I actually missed all my meetings that Saturday. I took it apart, brought it to San Francisco, and rebuilt it in the like the big area where they had all the the exhibits and everything and. It was there on display for the whole meeting and then the college. I don't know what they did with it. It was theirs. They they paid for the bricks. So it was about awesome. 7,500 pieces. That is fantastic. Okay, we'll definitely going to put a link to any of that. Yeah, you'll you'll find audience. it something. I'll find it online. But yeah, so we'll a- get back, we'll get back to your clinical journey. We we basically <laughs> made it to to your uh, Broadway uh, you know, uh, <laughs> debut and all, making it all the way to LA, which is where all Broadway eventually makes it uh, if if they're lucky. If they're lucky. But you know, you ultimately settled after that grueling training that had a year in Boston, and like you said, the trifecta: mm-hmm. Boston, Philly, New York. And um, you ultimately settled uh, on minimally invasive surgery, but it seems like more so a focus on upper gastrointestinal diseases, things like esophagus, stomach, pancreas. Dare I say? You have more HPB in you than hernia. I know it's shocking, Sharon. Very sorry to hear. Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, you know, don't hernia. we don't have only hernia people on the on I the mean, podcast. So nobody's perfect, Ross. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely can attest to that I am not nowhere close to that. But yes. Um... So with with such a broad background, what what are the areas that interest you the most clinically? It's for me, I, I, you know, currently Valley Wise Health is the county institution. So it makes sense. I'm going to another county institution. Uh, so the pathology here is always fascinating. So, you know, 
was it? I was a third year attending, maybe in my third year, I had a guy with a bad esophagus. He actually had bad varices. He had a T1 squamous cell G junction esophageal cancer. And I didn't want the uh, GI guys to do endoscopic resection until I fixed the nest of varices that was around his, you know, distal esophagus because I didn't want him to, you know, die from the, the resection. So he couldn't get a, a, a tips. His portal vein was completely clotted off. So me and my infinite wisdom did the first portal cable shunt that my hospital had seen in 10 years. Um, so we did that. That's old school, PC shunt, old school. Oh, it was horrible. Um, what did you use as a graph? So I had a vascular surgeon come in. I had my chairman in with me because they did a bunch when he was a, a resident there. Um, I also mentioned the guy was like triple antibody positive. So I had like five units of blood available on the Western part of the country. Uh, went in, basically uh, transected the portal confluence because it was already gone. And we used a big PTFE basically from the portal confluence to right on top of the giant IVC. Wow. Um, that's a, that's wow. a case, that. Ross. He survived that. Is that is a case. Uh, still had varices that they had to go. Then IR went through the shunt to go finish the rest of the varices to get rid of them. Uh, his endoscopic resection ended up being positive. So six months after the portal cable shunt, I did his esophagectomy. Uh, which he still survived from to this day. Wow. Uh, so it's been about six or seven years now. This sounds like a veteran. Uh, no, close. But, uh, <laughs> Nine lives. But uh, yeah, he uh, he's like, well, you tried to kill me once. It didn't work. You might as well take another crack at it. I appreciate the <laughs> attitude he had. Uh, he survived. It was uh, grueling. I mean, it was an open, big, you know, esophageal case, but cured him of his cancer. Uh it was a definitely one of those I'll never forget and never want to do again. Um, the guy was in his early 40s. Like, what was I going to do? Let him kind of like, we, you know, we talked about all the risks. We went through it all. I had everything mapped out, had the whole universe ready to go. But, you know, not advertising myself to ever do that again. But it's one of those cases where, you know, I was a younger attending with good senior support and my chairman's backing and we talked about it and he couldn't go anywhere else. So either I don't do anything or I try to help them. And if I, I told them if I didn't think it was safe, I'd stop. Um, and I may try lots of hands on deck, but, you know, I kind of get those. You know, I get I would go well, on runs here. I've gotten 40 centimeter retropenal tumors to take care of. And then I'll be on call and have a gallbladder and a hernia. So it's I, I have a nice general surgery mix, you know, all the way around. But honestly, which one did you really enjoy? The gallbladder, the hernia, or the retroperitoneal? Oh, sarcoma? here's the fishing now. This is coming now. There's only one right answer. The retroperitoneal hematoma, <laughs> uh, the li liposarcoma. That was not fun. It's like delivering yeah. a giant baby, but it wasn't really fun at all. Yes. Um, I really, you know what's funny? I didn't do robotics in fellowship. I did it starting when I got it here. Yeah, I really am a fan of the robotic angle hernia. I'm not gonna lie. I just think the anatomy. Mm -hmm. Did you hear I, that? Did you hear that, Kevin? What? Well, uh, full disclosure. <laughs> I did one today. Full did full disclosure. I did one today. So I don't get to do it that often. Uh, I mean, uh, I I oh, have I like to them. say I did one today. They're delightful. Uh, I am also a county, so same same no. kind of practice. Uh, you know, so yeah, I. I love the hernias too. Uh, Everyone's guilty pleasure. Yeah, I'm guilty pleasure. I get enough gallbladders. God, I got enough gallbladders. Yeah. I'm on call this weekend. I'm sure I'll get like 40 of them just to do one after another. So how's your how's your practice going to be different going to Arizona? 
Uh, so actually my new role is mostly administrative. So about 60 to 70% will be administrative. We are still figuring out the, uh, the clinical piece to it. Uh, obviously I'm not going down there to do any Whipples, which is fine. I got my fair share of crazy cases here. You'll have your former, one of your former mentors down there. So you can, right. Well, I mean, he's yeah, right across he's, the street. He's a, he's a, yeah. He's a Baptist. He and I have been chatting. Dr. Asma and I've had uh, conversations, um, but Another like, Sages Stories uh, podcast oh, yeah. uh, guest. Yeah. The, the first, the first one. He was the first, wasn't it? Because he was present at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah. He was one of my, he was one of the faculty at my fellowship. I, I mean, when we knew I was coming out here and they wanted me to do liver and pancreas, I ended up, we redesigned my fellowship. And about six months I spent with him and John Stauffer doing HPV, MIS HPV, just to get me, you know, ready for everything. Um, and but, now your competition, I'm sure he's upset well, about that. There's, there's no competition <laughs> with him. Uh, no, he is no. a phenomenal surgeon. I, no, I, get I know HPB stuff down there, probably acute care surgery, like doing some stuff with the residents and gallbladders. And that's probably what's going to look like. I told them I'm okay with that. I don't need to do the, the cases that give me chest pain anymore. I can do a, you know, some acute care surgery, but also be in the OR still to see what's going on for sleep. Yeah. Um, that's the plan probably. Yeah. Chest pain is very overrated. Yes. I don't, I don't need the crazy cases anymore that, I, you know, we're getting older, Ross, we're getting yes, older. I, I don't need that. I don't need that stress anymore. I've done it. Well, Do you have to take call? I'm trying to see if I can get out of it. Uh, we haven't really discussed that. I may end up taking administrator call at some point, so oh. that'll replace it. But uh, if there's no call, I won't lose any sleep over that. Yeah. I mean, no, you won't, because when you're not on call, you don't have, you, you actually sleep, very I can tell sleep. you. That is so it, it's actually going to be nice to have you back on the Eastern time zone. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> I, I, it'll be fun to be back. So, you know, chief of perioperative services, pretty big role. It's going to require a lot of energy and effort. Um, you kind of told us what that's going to do your clinical practice. So it's going to be 60% administrative then is that and 40 clinical or, or 60 clinical 40 administrative? No, more on the administrative side. Okay. 60. Uh, we're talking like 40 ORs, endoscopy. It's, it's a whole kind of, it's an impressive place. Like I had to walk around for a while and get my bearings and they do a lot of great work, complex work, you know, the rider mm-hmm. ORs are there. So all of that. And, um, they're excited and welcoming to have me. I'm excited for the new adventure. Uh, you know, I actually did some of this stuff here at ValleyWise. So this is just, you know, a nice challenge. And, you know, I met with the leadership to talk about their goals and plans and future state. And so it's going to be a, it'll be a cool next step. I'm, I'm actually, I told them it actually sounded fun. I know it sounds yeah. weird, but th- this kind of process improvement stuff where you can help a lot of patients and get people through. Uh, Absolutely. So this will, this will be a lot of fun. I'm sure it'll be a lot of headaches too. Like all the surgeons on my interviews were already telling me the issues they had before I had the job. So I know what I'm coming into, but uh, you know, surgeons, their room's always the most important. Their case is always the most important. I'm like that. So it'll be fun. Well, I mean, they're very lucky to have you. Plus, plus you need to tell them you, you're a Sages Stories podcast guest as well. Exactly. Well, I was going to wear the Sages scrub cap when I walked around. There you go. So. <laughs> well, congratulations! Back. I think that's that's amazing. Where Kevin and I are both like to really be one of the first to congratulate you, you. shortly before you move on. I guess in a in a, in a month or two, in two months. Yeah. Movers are coming in less than two months, so I've got a lot of Legos to take apart. Yeah, 
Well, there's so many facets to you, Ross. Uh, we talked about your fashion, your, you're an actor, you're a musician, you're, you're an amazing surgeon. You're now going to be a, a chief uh, across the country. Um, we've seen you on stage talking about advocacy in surgery. That's really amazing. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that aspect as well. And that's, a, as you guys know, a big passion for me. And I fell into yeah. By accident, like that was not like I didn't grow up interested in student government. Um, I will say the acting actually has helped a lot with the advocacy, because um, you know I did theater, right? And so for I, I'm, I'm look, I'm no world expert on acting, but you know to be on the stage, you have to connect with the audience. You have to be able to create that some sort of connection live, no matter what your character's doing, if it's funny, sad, whatever it is. So I and you have to also be willing to get up and kind of embarrass yourself a little bit and talk about stuff and like I've worn you know I've done Shakespeare where I've worn you know stockings and a poet shirt uh you know hopping around talking about a midsummer night's dream and you've got to be comfortable in your own skin to deal with people so that's given me I think the ability to connect with people uh, whether in the in the clinic talking to, to patients who are scared and talking about their surgery and advocating and talking to politicians and telling our stories because that's what advocacy is so I got involved in med school um, and it's been kind of been a parallel to my career ever since, uh, because I really believe that if we don't advocate for our patients, not just in the ORs and in the clinics, but in the state and federal legislators as well, you know, that's where the real damage can occur if we're not paying attention. I have a question for you about that, because I, I got involved with the college and at state uh, advocating locally in our state and we go every day up to Sacramento, our state capital and, and do that. I feel like if I don't have a check for $10,000 or more, they're not going to listen to me. That was my, just, just showing up and saying, I'm a surgeon. I need to like talk to you about something. I get very little traction. Is that, that was very, that was very frustrating to me. So there is a money part to it. You don't, can't deny that politics, there's money. They have to raise money to, you know, stay in office, things like that. But I will tell you this, if you're a constituent, you're the most important thing to that representative because without your vote they don't get to keep their job so we actually have a lot more power and ability than you think and studies have shown people think oh if i go in person and talk to them they don't care that's not true the staff cares the member cares they want to hear from their constituent because if they're not hearing from the people they represent they could be out of a job so they're not necessarily going to give you what you want but when you see them they want you to leave happy and yeah. i will tell you it's about building relationships. What do we do? We build relationships. I have, in fact, I have to call him back. I had a congressman here call me a couple of days ago. He and I are supposed to catch up and 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 just sit down and, ch and chat. Will he ask for money? Sure he will, because he's running for office. They're always asking for money. But he doesn't ask me for money every time we talk. Sometimes he just wants to know what's going on. He said, I, knew, I wanted to have a better relationship with the physicians in Arizona. So we sat down for an hour and we just talked. About, about issues that his family went through, that things that I see and that I advocate for. And it's building those connections so that when a bill comes up that I want him to look at, you know, if if our lobbying staff can't get through to his staff, I can text him because I have a cell phone number and say, hey, can you look at this and tell me what you think? And he gets back to me. So sure, is there money? So I've given him some money to a campaign, not a ton because, you know, I'm not, you know, a hedge fund, you know, billionaire. Uh, but I do give, but I give to the pack. The service pack is one where they build a relationship and you can actually deliver a check on their behalf. So sometimes the money you're breaking doesn't have to be all your own. 
So like I give to the surgeons pack and then if they want to have a check event with some candidate or representative, I can go deliver the check on their behalf. And it's another meet and greet away in the chat. So yes, there's money. I'm never going to deny that, but I'll tell you a lot of my visits have nothing to do with money. They have to do with issues and we talk all the time and, and it's building those relationships for when they need them and when you need them. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've enjoyed coming to your talks on advocacy. Um, you've really been a leader in our field and your topics have ranged from the surgeon's role in addressing the opioid crisis to more recent discussions about reimbursement, which is, uh, I think, near and dear to all of us. Um, in fact, at the SAGES board meeting, you talked a little bit about the most uh, recent hernia code changes. Horrible. Oh, you're, I was waiting for you to throw this at me. Not, yeah. I so I guess, I guess it's hard to completely get away from hernia, isn't no, it? I, yeah. And, and, and in better. any case, you really have to, you, you got to get a handle on these new codes. And I, I think it would, it was an amazing summary uh, that you gave. And I think it would be good to hear your summary again, both for myself, for Sharon, more for Sharon. Uh, I, I do dip one I really today, do want to hear what you have to say about those. But, but many, many of our, many surgeons do hernia and, and fun fact, you know, as I said, I, I did one earlier today. So just kind of boil it down for us. Give us like the nitty gritty. What are the new codes? Right. Maybe dumb it down for like people like for me. me. Well, yeah. for me, trust me, I have to learn all this stuff. Um, well, I'm not a coding expert. I'll say that. And I, I'm very thankful to those people that go to the CBT and Ruck. Like you've heard me say before, I don't know how they can do two or three days of just talking about codes and valuations. Like they are the true heroes because they are doing the hard work behind the scenes. And they were there kind of advocating for what happened with the hernia codes. And this is, this is where the advocacy gets really complex. It's not just legislative, it's regulatory. So CMS sets the payments for how they pay us, right? Not to get into too much crazy detail. Okay, so centers of Medicaid, yeah, Medicare sorry, services. Centers yes. for Medicare and Medicaid services. Um, they are required by law, uh, actually through, I think it was the Omnibus Budget uh, Bill from 1989 on how they pay physicians through this resource-based relative value system. Um, and it's a, it's a complex calculation looking at geographic cost, resource use, physician use, and they come up with these relative value units, the RVUs, everyone's favorite term. Your work RVUs times some conversion factor equals X amount of dollars. So X amount of work, wherever you are, how much it costs to practice, your liability insurance times the factor, you get some cash. Really, really simple. So everything, every code, which we have a whole CPT editorial panel that's run through the AMA that multiple specialties and groups are involved. And there's a whole process on how to come up with codes, how to research them, how to value them. So the hernias have a set of codes. You've got your abdominal wall hernia codes, your ingle hernia codes, putting mesh in, taking mesh out, peristomals, they all have codes. And basically what happens is that the CPD comes up with codes and then they'll rock which is the relative value kind of unit commission for the from the AMA. Again, multiple groups are part of it. Make recommendations to CMS on what to value those codes at. They're just recommendations. CMS does whatever it wants. It can listen to them. It can say, we don't want to agree with that. And there are RVU values for every different type of hernia that are out there. In the past, it was based on approach, right? Your abdominal hernias were open versus laparoscopic. That was kind of how they were looking at it. What happened was, is that there was an issue called site on service. So 
because we have gotten so good at minimally invasive techniques, we have been moving out of the having to admit patients post big, big hernia repairs, able to send them home. Well, CMS, because they, again, have to keep up with all this stuff and don't as efficiently as we like, your federal government at work, um, still were kind of paying codes out based on the fact they thought or felt we were admitting patients afterwards. So as soon as that happened, they said there's an issue here. They felt they were overpaying because the patients are no longer staying in the hospital. They're not paying for a hospital stay. They wanted to revalue the codes, which would have significantly impacted them. On top of that, CMS has an issue with something called the 90-day globals. So most of the surgical procedures, you do your operation, whatever they pay you, you kind of, and pardon the term, own that patient for 90 days. So if something happens in the meanwhile, based on your surgery, you're not getting extra money for doing interventions. It's gonna come out of what they paid you. There has been some questionable studies by the RAND Corporation and others saying that surgeons don't follow up with their own patients, that they're they're overpaying for these visits. So they are actively going against and trying to get rid of the 90-day globals because that means they can turn everything to a zero-day global, means that you pay for everything you do, but they can devalue them because they're breaking it apart. So what happened was you take a combination of they don't like the 90-day globals, they, they felt they were overpaying for hernias, they were gonna drastically slash the reimbursement rates for hernias. The surgeons in these groups got concerned and said, whoa, 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 we have to look at things. So they came up with a way to try to minimize the damage, if you will. They had to come up with some ways on how to address this. So they these new hernia codes popped up solely for anterior abdominal wall that are now approach agnostic, that are size-based, and actually have zero day globals attached so that you operate and for every post-op visit, you can you you bill for the post-op visit. They suggested a set of values to CMS. CMS looked at them, said great, and lowered the value. Uh, and then so CMS ultimately came up with this result. Now, a response for advocacy is, well, you just made a bad thing a little less bad. Why should we be thankful? If you go onto things like the ACS website, they had webinars, things like that, on ways on how it kind of you can even things out and how things can work out. Now, here's the rub to all of this to make it even more complex. If you look at the average salary for or what a general surgeon is making across the country, there, even though our reimbursement rates for personal surgeons are going down, our overall uh, salaries are going up. And so there becomes a little bit of a dichotomy that's hard to argue about where you're lowering the value in one area, but they're making it back in another area. And so this is where you get super complex with everything with hospital reimbursement and everything. So it's a really muddy, complex issue. And I am far from an expert. I've just been doing it for 20 years. So I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Which what you need to do when you talk to politicians is just kind of frame the, the, the issue. Um, there are great details on the college's website, on the AMA's website about all kind of the details of how this all works. But the idea was we had surgeons in place who were trying to not have a damaging process go through because private practice, you know, they are small businesses. They have to be able to keep the doors open. You know, my one, you learn to give one-liners in advocacy. So I ask every politician, name me a small business that stays afloat if all they do is take on customers that make them lose money every day. They can't yeah. do yeah. So Congress understands that the problem is these fixes are going to cost billions of dollars. And I know, well, especially in today's environment, look at what's going on with the debt ceiling. They get very nervous about spending that kind of money. There's attempts to do it. We don't even get inflationary updates in our Medicare reimbursement rates. We're the only group that doesn't get an inflationary update based on how the law was written 40 years ago. 
fixing that's going to cost billions of dollars. So this is the problem we run up against. But if we don't do it, they'll just slash everything to the bone and we'll be left hanging out to dry. There'll be no one available. So for us, it's an access to care issue. I know that went on for a little bit there, but hopefully that is a little bit of a simplification. But just so people know, if you do an, uh, a ventral wall hernia and an ingual hernia, the ingual hernia still is under the 90-day global. So anything you do that's 90 days supersedes the zero day. So if you did an ingual wall with an umbilical, oh. you don't get to charge them for the individual visits. It falls under the ingual hernia code. And so it's a 90-day global just as an extra. There you go. Good to know. I, that was a question that I never had the answer to. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, and check the website to make sure. I hate to give wrong advice. Again, not official coding, not official anything. And neither but, confirm nor deny. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, uh, it's, but if, I, if I'm not mistaken, go on. But if there's something that you're doing that has a 90-day attached to it, the 90-day is going to win. That, that, that trumps the other one. Okay. Yeah. But I double didn't... check that for uh, I would double check that. Always verify. Trust, but verify. Should we shift gears a little, Kevin? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. Yeah. Depressing. <laughs> that, that, but that was fascinating. And, and thank you. I, I think, yeah. you know, our listeners might have to listen to that a couple of times to kind of catch all the nuances. But um, another area uh, outside the OR that you focused on is is surgical leadership. You're uh, like a you, diamond, Ross. So many yeah. facets. Yeah, I you, you really just keep polishing it too. And and you've, I know, I knew that you'd completed the Brandeis course and many other courses specifically targeted to leadership in surgery. So if you were going to give us, you know, give us and our leader, uh, our listeners, some lessons, some key nuggets of what it means, what are some key lessons of being a leader in surgery? That's a great question because I'm still figuring it out myself. Um, I've, I think the idea is that I can really impart upon everyone I'm a firm believer that if more surgeons are involved and in charge, things will run better. That's a bias that I fully admit to because we have a very, you know, focused way of dealing with issues, right? What do we do for a living? We see a problem, we fix it, we move on. That's not how a hospital works. That's not how many things work. Um, but I think if you're data-driven, I think if you show that you're willing to be a team player and let's face it, surgery is the greatest team sport there is. So we are natural team players because we need to rely on a good team to do our jobs that learning and speaking the administrative language is vital to make change so we had a we built a robotic program because i'm the one that you know thanks to and i conrad balliser and that whole group who helped get intuitive to come help us but then i had to make the pitch to uh, my hospital leadership to sell them on doing and getting a robot uh, and so I'm the one that, you know, had to present the performa and speak in a way to show them the ROI. And, you know, what do I know? I don't have an MBA. Uh, congrats, by the way, Kevin. Uh, that's something else I'm going to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. I, I follow <laughs> social media too. So uh, that too. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, week fresh. I'm just a week out from it. So. And, and I'm not, a, I, I, you know, both of you are far better business experts than I am, but, you know, what I've learned from the leadership courses is, again, is engaging administrators, engaging people that can influence what you do. It's uh, for me, it's a natural extension of my advocacy work. Uh, you know, a politician can change my job with one vote. Well, a CEO or a COO or a CFO can change what I do by, you know, one decision uh, can affect my ability. If they want to change suppliers, if they want to get rid of a suture I like, if they want to change the OR staffing where I don't have enough access to the OR now, and they're saying, figure it out. 
or if you're employee based and if you're for a hospital based and you are RV based and they cut your ability to do RVs, how do you advocate for that? So understanding why and how things are done gives you a, a better appreciation on how you can care for your patients, but also on how to help you know, enact change. The old adage is if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that works in a lot of areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's, I've engaged my leadership and they like it because they're not used to having surgeons be engaged who are actually not just saying, do it my way. Like I'm, I compromise things like that. These are all appropriate things to do working across the table. If you're not willing to do that, then you kind of falter. And can you tell me one thing I love about courses is the books that you end up reading are really fascinating. What were some of your favorite books from these courses? So it's funny. It's actually the courses themselves. So the Brandeis course in particular has a brick. And so I'm old enough now that I did it so long ago that I have a digital version and the physical, uh, you know, let's put it this way. The binder was so big, they had to ship it to us when we were done that we, we couldn't put oh, it in our suitcase. You couldn't put it in your suitcase. <laughs> no, because we all like, had carry-ons and it wouldn't fit. Paper, yeah. It was this thick. And I will wow. tell you, some of the scenarios were unbelievable. Like you did social experiments. Like it, it was a game, but you broke up in groups for one activity and you had to do a social mapping of a company that you were like the CEO of. And you had to mm-hmm. learn all these different ways of learning how people, what groups they were, were in and how to make them all an effective team. We did scenarios about, you know, how to map out flow through a giant hospital. It just all these different ways. I learned more from the material that I still go back to and look at from my course, you know, that my uh, practice group did with USC um, from Brandeis, the surgeons as leaders course. I pulled all those kind of nuggets of information and usually it's a recommendation from there as well. I'll read or get that material and always trying to see what else is out there. But uh, I've got a stack of stuff that I still have to go through, like, you know, the extreme leadership books and all the other ones that are, there's so much good stuff out there. But honestly, I would say go find our leadership and talk to them. You learn so much just from talking to our leaders and what they've been through. Uh, There's a lot of nuggets that you don't get from a book because of personal experience. It's just, you know, talk to our current and former presidents. Uh, Same thing for the college. That's where a lot of the kind of that vital information is hidden that you're not going to find in any book. And that's why you have to subscribe to Sage's Stories. Yeah, exactly. That's that's great stuff as always. I I think we could pick your brain on advocacy, leadership, all these topics for hours. But alas, we have to move the podcast along a little bit. uh, and, And being the official podcast for Sage's, we always like to hear uh, about our guest's first introduction to the society. When did you first learn about Sages and join? My fellowship. Uh, So I didn't know much, honestly, during residency. My residency was kind of broken up between St. Vincent's and Thomas Jefferson. But uh, my first year of my my fellowship was a research year. So S.P. Bowers was was my program director. Dan Smith, who had just recently come off being president of Sages at the time, Horacio. And they're all like, you need you present at Sages. You have to get involved. So my first meeting was my it was 2010, 2011. Yeah, 2011 was my first meeting, um, and I fell in love right afterwards. And then we met. I got to go to the Sedona course, you know, during my clinical year. And Dr. Schweitzer got up there and said, "If you want to be on a committee, you know, let me know." And of course, me being the advocacy nerd, wow. I said, "I know what I want to be on," and haven't looked back. And I'm thankful for everyone in Sages, you know not just our year, but all the leadership, they were so welcoming and, and were willing to try and do things that we hadn't done before. And, and kind of just 
they let you kind of cultivate and they nurtured you and they moved you along and they do that with a lot of people and it's just a really cool warm welcome environment you know I'll look I, i'm a college guy too i have leadership roles in the college it's a different way of going up the chain there here it's much more of a familial kind of approach where we're all working together for similar goals and it's just a very welcoming environment. So I felt immediately comfortable in my first meeting and had to look back. Yeah, SAGES and the American College of Surgeons are two giants, uh, but very different. Yeah, yeah. they're complementary. Yeah. It's, it's a it's important, I think, to be part of both. Each brings their own strengths and they can work well together on certain issues. SAGES is definitely a more on the cutting edge, no pun intended, of that. But, but again, <laughs> just the environment not to say the college isn't, but just there's something about SAGES, that energy, just go to the SAGES meeting, go to the Clinical Congress. You can feel the difference in the SAGES meeting. Just There's just a way about it, which is great. And where is it next year? I think Cleveland, maybe. I heard Cleveland. of April. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everybody Can't come. Can't wait. Hopefully it's not snowing. We'll see. Oh, snow? Wait, are you serious? It's in Denver, so whatever. We're used to that. Yeah, we've had snow the last... Two meetings, so I guess we it'd be yeah, it, yeah. We'll see, we'll see. Okay. So you you have you have been in multiple committees and kind of climbed the ranks, and you know, um, it's always nice to know what's next in Sages for for Ross Goldberg. That's a great question. I don't know. I just finished my term as the advocacy and health policy chair. I'm very thankful for that ability and also for the opportunity, I should say, and. Also thankful to step down. <laughs> um, I, I I think now, especially with the new job, I'm kind of taking a step back and seeing. Uh, I serve at the pleasure of the organization. Um, you know, I've told leadership I'm happy to do whatever is asked. I get to still be on the board and hear all the great things being done. Uh, I don't know, which is kind of fun. I like not knowing sometimes. Uh, and as long as I can still contribute, you know, in any way people think I can, I'm happy to do so. I love it. And um, one last question before the most important question of the of the of the podcast. <laughs> um, who would you like to see as the next guest on Sage's stories? So it's funny. I've been thinking about that. I looked at your list again because because I've listened to them and you know you've had some unbelievable speakers on. Yeah. I have a couple names I'm going to throw out there. Uh, names you know and love. Uh, Dana Tellum. If you haven't already talked to her about it, her path again. I'm biased. A big fan. Um, also We're big Chris, fans too. Yeah, Ducoin, big fans. All the work he's done. Who's the second? Sorry, we missed that. Chris, Chris Ducoin. Oh yeah, yeah. Chris Ducoin. Yeah. Besides all the great work he's done in Tampa, just all the work he's done, kind of with his committee, the just this amount of work he's put in. There's uh, he's just got a you know a fascinating story to hear everything he's worked on so far and where how far it's come. So those are a couple ideas off the top of my head. Those yeah, are great. Those are great. And for ours. And definitely Archana Ramaswamy's favorite segment, <laughs> which is the We Are the Sages segment. Yes. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you bright our day, so let's start dreaming. Have you had a good time tonight? We'd love to hear your favorite Sage's moment until now, because we know that next year 
at Sages in <laughs> Cleveland, yes. you will have your new favorite moment. Well, I'm going to surprise you a little bit because it's not going to be the typical one you hear of a lot. People talk about the sing-off, things like that. Um, it was oh. Las Vegas. Um, so I mentioned before, my father's an attorney, doesn't do anything in the medical field, um, but has done some lectures on medical malpractice. So the uh, our program chairs gave me the honor. He had never been to one of my meetings before. didn't know what any of this was like. Um, I moderated a session with my father at Sages in Las Vegas on medical malpractice. Oh, wow. I had to do that with my dad on the stage. He and I chared it together. He gave I a lecture. That. He deposed me. It's on. We have a video. I don't remember this. So I don't, man. It, it, was, it, was, it was like, I think, Thursday or Friday afternoon. Um, and so I got my dad had never seen any of my meetings. He'd heard about them. And so he, it was still, you know, during the pandemic, my mom couldn't come, but my dad was there on stage with me at Sages running a Can't session. Miss that. Like, I remember I this, this, no. this, you guys all wore outfits too, right? No, no, I, well, no, just suits. Oh, just uh, no, he's a lawyer. His dad's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so, he had a so great he, uh, suit on. He, um, <laughs> he had a suit on. He gave a talk about it. Brent Matthews was on our, on our panel. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and we did a little mock deposition of a good way and a bad way of doing it. And I got to share the stage with my dad. When are you ever going to do that? That will probably be, to be honest, of all the meetings and I've gone to a lot, that'll probably be my favorite moment oh, of my cool. entire career. To be able we to just have it. to bring him to Cleveland. We're going we're gonna to reenact it in Cleveland. Yeah, he's always happy to come chat. But that, that is my, that is my, and I, I think Dana. And That'd I, be I, tough to that top that. Was, yeah. That huge, huge thing for me. I didn't expect that. And that was a really cool moment for me. Very cool. Very cool. I well, threw up on that one, right? You like that? I liked it. It had a family like. Yeah, I like that. And I always like family connections. You're always the best, Ross. I was so looking forward to this podcast with you. And I would say, uh, I mean, I've had fun with every single one of them, but this was awesome. You're big, right? Truly a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time and even listening to me ramble on. I know I can go on for a while. So you always got to make sure that there's some sort of waving of the hands to calm me down or otherwise I'll go on a rant. I know, but uh, I appreciate it. I just, it's fun to sit and chat with friends. Uh, yeah. That's kind of the cool thing about this, right. We're all good friends that, you know, the organization may have introduced us, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't end at the meetings, which is what's really cool. I love that. Absolutely. And we wish you the best in, in your move. And uh, obviously we cannot wait to see you again. Uh, so hopefully it's sooner rather than later. I agree. Everyone's welcome down to Miami. I know it's not LA. I'll be down in February. It's LA that's, adjacent. Uh, it's it's, it's LA adjacent. It's yeah. Miami though. So yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Me. It's Miami. I'm Miami. not going to be wearing pastel suits or anything like that. Don't, <laughs> that's not going to happen. No. Awesome, brother. Great talking to you. Thank so you. Much. See you soon. Bye. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.